Luke chapter 6. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own a Bible, it's our gift to you. If you want to give it to someone else, it's our gift to them. But Luke chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to read verses 12 through 16. And then I'll, I'll pray to get us, get us started. So in the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, and then Luke's gospel. Chapter 6, verse 12 says this. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. Let me bring some of this to the uh, forefront of your mind here for a moment. These days, essentially, for Jesus, have been days of increasing uh, opposition, increasing animosity, increasing rejection, conflict. So immediately following his baptism... When the Spirit falls and the Father declares his, uh, his approval of his Son, and they seem great, immediately following that, what do we read? But that the Holy Spirit thrusts him into the wilderness and things start to get crazy. Things start to get a little hairy for Jesus from that point on. Refresher. In 4, 1 through 13 of Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit thrusts him into the wilderness and he, he's there doing combat with the devil himself. Some of you might remember that. And then when he returns from the wilderness in verses 16 through 30, he's, he comes to his hometown boys there in Nazareth. And in a synagogue, he gets up and he says, man, listen, the, the year of Jubilee, all that that stood for is, is here in me. I've come to set the captives free. And they all turn on him and say, kill him. Get him out of here. The guy's crazy. Let's get him off a cliff. Passes through their midst, comes to Galilee. That's where we are now with Jesus. We are in Galilee. And here, at first, the crowds are amazed at his authority over the demonic realm. That's verses 31 through 37 of chapter 4. But this amazement quickly gives way to anger and accusation. It doesn't take long for Jesus, for whatever reason, to get on people's bad side. Even though he's amazing and awesome, people just get angry and start accusing, particularly the religious authorities of his day. Chapter 5, verse 21, here's an accusation. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or... Chapter 5, verse 30, and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? The guy's just sitting around the table with dirty lowlifes. Surely he can't be the Messiah he claims to be. Or chapter 6, verse 2, but some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? As he and his disciples are taking grain and breaking it in their hands and eating it. Or uh, rising to a climax, essentially, verse 11. After healing a, um, a brother's withered right hand. I mean, something that we would think would cause the, the, the crowds to celebrate and rejoice. Here's what happens with the scribes and the Pharisees there in verse 11. They were filled with fury. 
and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And that, brothers and sisters, is verse 11 that precedes verse 12, where Jesus, or I'm sorry, where Luke picks up his pen and writes, in these days. Those are the kind of days we're talking about as we start to follow what Jesus does next. Days of increasing opposition and conflict. Days when the new things arriving in Christ are, 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 are coming under fire uh, from the old things established in Israel. I'm not sure we like these new things. Get him out of here. Fury. What can we do with him? In these days, let's finish Luke's sentence here now in verse 12. He went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. Let me ask you something. Where um, do you go when things get rough? When the heat gets kind of turned up in your life? when opposition and conflict are on the rise, when things are falling apart around you or you're tempted to despair, where do you go for strength? To the bottle? To the television? To the whiteboard? To the to-do list and the action plan? We know where Jesus goes. He goes to the mountain all night to talk to his father. In these days, I gotta talk to my father and I gotta get away to do it in the night to do it. I gotta clear my head, reorient my heart, re-energize myself with his mission for me. Cause this is hard. Everywhere I turn, even though I'm restoring people and bringing redemption, nobody wants it. Two contextual details are given here in verse 12 that I think are worth some reflection. Um, before we just move on. The first is, is this. Jesus went out where? To the mountain. He went out to the mountain. Now, when we think of, of going up into the mountains, we think of getting away. And I, I kind of mentioned this last time, I think, when I discussed the Sabbath, uh, where, you know, when you, when you go up to the mountain, so to speak, a lot of times you can breathe a little bit freer there, breathe a little bit easier there. You kind of get away from some of the stuff that's going on down below. You can also perhaps see a little clearer. I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times we're too close to something to see it uh, uh, very clearly. Sometimes it's actually in the distance that we get more clarity so that when we come back to it, uh, we come back with renewed sense of vision and direction. Getting away with the Lord uh, reorients us and re-energizes us, I think, for his mission. Uh, to give you uh, an example from my own life, this is why I love to to run in the hills, like behind my house or anywhere around here, really. Um, 
I'll, I'll let you in on a little secret. I, I, I don't like to run. <laughs> okay. I, I, I like to run. I love the run. Let me put it this way. I love the run in the hills uh, around here. Not because I love to run, but because I love the Lord. And in the hills, I find an opportunity to kind of get away. If you try to get me to run on a treadmill, run on a track, run on a street, run with one of those little calorie counting, step counting little things, I'm miserable. I hate it. But you take me to the hills and set me loose, there my spirit starts to sing. Not because I love to run, but because in, in the hills or on the mountains, so to speak, you can get away. You can kind of get some distance between you and the, the ordinary stuff of your life and gain some perspective. We can step back from our to-do list. We can step out of our little cubicle. And we can perhaps hear more clearly the Father's voice. Are we doing that? Are you doing that? Are we getting away in these times? And listening and speaking to Him. I'm not trying to get all all animistic on you in the sense like the hills are somehow there's some magic power or they're telling me things. It's just I think it's this simple natural process, natural dynamic of stepping out for a little bit to gain clarity and direction before God before you get back in. It's uh it's the dynamic essentially I talked about a few sermons back uh where I identified it as as the desolate place and the divine imperative where we we get out to the desolate place and and it's there that we often gain a, a, a clearer sense of the divine imperative for our life, of God's desire, design, will, of the next steps I need to take when I step back into the chaos. And we step back with renewed resolve, renewed focus, renewed sense of purpose. So Jesus, in days like these, heads up to the mountain to be with his father. But there's another contextual detail that I wanted to bring out. And and that is that he doesn't just head up to the mountain during the day. That's when you and I would go. He goes up to the mountain in the night, all night. And as I started thinking about the night and, 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 and what that adds to our discussion here and some of our reflection, I don't know um, what the night is like there in Galilee for for Christ. I didn't do my background research on that. Uh, I don't know what it would be like there on the mountain for him in the night around there. But I do know around here in the hills, it's a scary place to be. It's a scary place to be. Uh, I, I kind of live uh, on the base of some of the hills there, and and dude, uh, there's mountain lions in those hills. I mean, somebody, one of my neighbors, uh, Jill, showed me like a video uh, that someone's security camera had taken because we're so close. He's strutting on the, uh, down our street, this lion, you know, this cruiser. I'm like, that is, that's not cool. And he's he's prowling at night. We got coyotes. I don't know if you live around here, but do you hear those coyotes at night when like there's carnage going on in these hills and they're like letting out these war cries because they just got like somebody's Pomeranian or something. <laughs> It's not a safe place for, for Schnooky to play out there. It's scary. The, no, the night, in my mind, out in the hills, seems like a frightening place. But as I thought more about it, 
I think the night is also, uh, it could perhaps be more freeing. And, and here's what I mean. Do you, you remember the words to that old hymn? Um, you know, the things of earth grow strangely dim. Well, that's literally happening in the night. Okay? In the night, the things of this earth grow strangely dim. Literally. The lights go out on the nine to five and everything that we kind of get wrapped up in. And I don't know about you, but I don't get too many phone calls uh, in the middle of the night. You might get some emails from me because that's about the only time I can uh, uh, get some time to write. But most of the time, that's when you can get away from people. You get away from your boss isn't expecting you to be doing anything at 3 a.m. You can't even see the things of this earth and all of its, you know, possessions and false promises. But living the light to the city kind of go out. And so it's in those moments, I think, that perhaps we can see a little bit clearer than we ever could see in the day. Now, just a couple of days ago, um, I, I feel like I saw kind of the, the end game of, of all our worldly pursuits. I saw someone who had made it. Here's, here's what I saw. I was just going for a walk and I come across this guy who's, <laughs> he's sitting in his, uh, front driveway in like a lawn chair, you know, and sun is shining. He's got his Lamborghini parked right next to him, just cherry red, like it just came out of the, you know, the car wash. The birds are singing, the, the flowers are, are kind of popping up just naturally in his yard all around him. And you want to know what he's doing? Kid you not, polishing his golf clubs. Polishing his golf clubs. Take them out one by one. Ooh, that's nice. Polish that, put it in. Polish that, put it in. I, ma- I imagine, presumably, he's going to there, then uh, put his golf clubs in his Lamborghini, drive off and play the day away and i thought man that right there is the goal brothers and sisters of millions upon millions upon billions of people not just our city but all the world looking into the american dream so to speak saying that's it and jesus i think is saying by going on the mountain in the night We've got to put the lights out on that. We've got to pull the plug on the American dream. I don't want to see the things of this earth for a moment. I need to get clear-headed before my father. Because this place isn't my home. This place isn't where my treasure is. And with all the conflict and all the opposition, it is hard to stay the course. People are going to want to make me king now, but I'm going to become king through death. He goes up on the mountain at night to pray, saying, God, this place isn't my home. Turn out the lights on this place and turn on the lights to your glory and the mission and the plan that you have for me. Reorient and re-energize my heart, Father for the mission, for the plan that you have 
even if that plan is hard. I think, again, the shadow of the cross is already over our Savior. He's already probably having Gethsemane moments. (laughs) Gethsemane moments. God, is is there any other way to redeem? (laughs) This is already starting to hurt. Give me strength. I mean, I know we agreed to this. I know we're doing this. Give me strength. So he's on the mountain in the night, all night, praying in those kind of days. Are we there with him? Are you there with him? I want to be there with him. Second heading now and moving into verses 13 to 16a, the apostles. So we move from the mountain where he spends all night in prayer now to uh, the apostles. And what we see is that this night in prayer gave him clarity on his next steps. The desolate place gave him a sense of clarity on the divine imperative for him. And so he comes now, and we read this in verse 13. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Now, here we're reminded uh, that... Uh, the picture I painted at first is not the full picture. It's, it's not as bleak as I, as I made it sound. Not everyone has responded to Jesus with opposition. Because he has disciples. He has people that have, have followed him, that have seen something in him. But here's the catch. It's the religious and the political elite. It's the kind of upper echelon of society that have a problem with Christ. They're the ones that are rejecting because uh, he's coming and he is stirring up the status quo. And well, for them, the status quo is going well. <laughs> Don't screw that up. Pharisees, we look good in this scenario. Don't you tell me I'm a whitewashed tomb and I need saving. So it's not them. They're the ones that are turning. But but here they're turning from Christ, I should say. But the ones that are turning to him. You got the losers, you got the lame, you got the weak, you got the lepers, you got the sick, you got the sinful, you got the tax collectors, you got the people that nobody wants to be around. These are the guys that see in Christ a way out. They sense their need for redemption and they're clinging hold of the one they think might be able to bring it to them. So Jesus has disciples. He calls this kind of ragtag group of disciples to himself and he chooses from among them 12 whom he named apostles. Apostles. Now, perhaps the first thing we need to do here is focus in on that word apostle. We're familiar with the word perhaps, but I wonder if we know what it means. I wonder if we know what it means. The word in English is just a transliteration of the word in Greek, apostolos. So some some uh, words that we have as a church, we just simply rip right out of the Greek, apostolos, apostle. But apostolos, the noun for apostle, comes from the verb uh, apostello, which according to the industry standard Greek dictionary that I have, uh, means this. Now hear me. To dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective. To send out. To dispatch someone for the achievement of some objective to send out. So what I'm gathering is that this word apostle may be a noun grammatically, 
but it kind of has at its core the kind of rumbling energy of a verb. When Jesus is naming these men apostles, it's because he has a major plan for what he wants them to do, and he is going to authorize them to do it, send them out to do it. These are going to be sent ones, heralds of the king, or uh, as we'll see here um, from um, one scholar, he defines them as ambassadors. Herman Ritterboss puts it this way, um, trying to define apostle. It denotes an ambassador with a special mission who acts on behalf of a person, represents him, and has been given full powers and authority for this purpose. That sounds, that sounds amazing. <laughs> and Jesus is calling these twelve and naming them apostles. Perhaps bringing it all together would be Mark's account of this story because he kind of gives the purpose of an apostle in this. Let me read this to you. This is um, Mark three thirteen to 15. He, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. And here it is. So that... So that, why did he, why did he name them apostles? Here's kind of the purpose statement. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So to be chosen and named an apostle is to be both drawn near to Jesus with special access to him and to be sent out by Jesus with a special authority given by him. Does that make sense? So it's a high honor. It's a high privilege. Now, uh, if we have a better sense of of what an apostle is, um, let me for a moment ask another question. Why 12? Why 12 apostles? I mean, Jesus doesn't mess around. He just spent all night with the Father in prayer. Why come down and name 12 as your apostles? Why not more? Why not less? Is there even a reason? Is this just a silly question? Well, I'll get to uh, what I think is the most important reason, but here are a few for you to consider, and, and certainly missiological or church strategy books will even identify some of these. Um, but certainly there are, there are strategic reasons, we might say, for this move, choosing 12. Uh, remember, Jesus is doing all of this in light of the impending crisis, the fact that the Pharisees want to kill him. And so what makes sense uh, from this point forward, what would be a strategic move, uh, would be to, okay, wait a minute, if I'm going to die, who's going to carry this on after I'm dead? So he's thinking about multiplication. He's thinking about multiplying himself into some men who will then carry on his mission as his essentially successors. So there's a strategic element to it, but then there's also a pragmatic element to it, you could say. And, and that would be this. Uh, so, so you see that you want to multiply yourself into some people, but you can't multiply yourself into all your disciples. That would be impossible. Therefore, let's choose out from among them all some that we're going to focus on. And we're going to really spend time with them, really develop things with them so that they are ready. And we'll see, Jesus will focus in on these 12 and then even later, uh, perhaps more narrowly, three, right? Peter, James, and John. 
But, and here's where I think we get to the more important point. Uh, while we can get a sense that his selection of, of the twelve is, is, is strategic perhaps and pragmatic, it's also symbolic. Symbolic of something deeply important to uh, the redemptive historical plan of God. Because twelve, uh, according to those first little two ideas, uh, you know, strategic, pragmatic, really doesn't necessitate twelve still. You could just choose seven, you could choose ten, and it would still be strategic and pragmatic. Why? Twelve. I think he's aiming to be symbolic of something. He's trying to show a picture of what he's doing at a deeper level. Because let, let me ask you, is the number 12, uh, those of you that might be familiar with the Old Testament, is, is the number 12 significant for any reason at all? Anything come to your mind? Is it not the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So when Yahweh, when Yahweh is looking at an enslaved people in Egypt, right? an enslaved people in Egypt, and he wants to redeem them for himself, gather them around himself. What does he do? Who does he choose? How many, you know, what sorts of people does he choose? How many, could we say? He chooses 12 tribes. The 12 tribes of Israel. And I think, therefore, implication here, Christ is forming a new covenant community. A new Israel, a new people of God, a new humanity around himself. And he's beginning with these 12 apostles. So all that was pictured in Israel and what God did there kind of in foreshadowing ways is now coming into fullness and fulfillment in Christ as he is going to move beyond just the the, the Jews to the entire world. And he's starting with these 12 as an indication. New humanity is coming. New covenant people of God coming. Fuller, deeper way. If, if you're questioning me on this point, um, consider Revelation 21 for a moment. Verses 12, and, and, and I'll skip to verse 14. John is, is given a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, of where all of this is going. And he sees a new Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride. That's what he kind of says. This is what he says about what he sees there in this new Jerusalem. Verse 12 of Revelation 21, it had a great high wall with 12 gates And at the gates, twelve angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. But he goes on in verse 14 and says this. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So when when John is given a picture of the new heavens and new earth, the new Jerusalem and what it's going to be like, the dwelling place of God with man, he sees both on on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, and on the foundations of the gates, the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I think... He, 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 he makes my case. I'm not reading into Luke 6. When Jesus chooses 12, he does so with uh, a deeply significant purpose. Uh, 
He wants us to make a link between the old covenant people of God and now this new covenant people. He wants us to see, I think, that the Old Testament work of God is organically related to the New Testament work of God. He wants us to see that there is a unity in both the plan and the people of God. But I do think that there is a bit more that we are intended to see here. Even in Revelation 21. Because while, while I think what we notice is, okay, wow, name on the gates, name on the foundations, there's this connection, there's this kind of parity between the tribes of Israel and the apostles. I think we're supposed to see something more than parity here. I think we're supposed to see the superiority of the apostles of the Lamb. And I'm getting that because where are the names inscribed? The tribes of Israel on the gates. The apostles of the Lamb on the foundations that are upholding the gates, if you will. Jesus is moving the plan of God forward in such a way uh, to its kind of final and its fullest forms. He is going to now, what we will see, uh, establish a, a people that is not just ethnic. It is certainly Jewish. Absolutely. But it's more than Jewish. It's going to compose men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Let me read this to you in Galatians 3, 28 to 29. Paul writes this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham, the father of Israel, Abraham's offspring. And later on in Galatians 6, 16, he says, you are the Israel of God. So the issue, brothers and sisters, for us, if we want to be a part of the people of God, if we want to be a part of the, the, the community that God is redeeming in this world and making new and bringing into glory and going to dwell in the new Jerusalem, the issue is not your ethnicity, but your relationship to Jesus Christ. Do you belong to him? Do you believe in him? Because in him, every promise ever given to Israel is yes and amen. And so when we have Christ, we have it all. And we become citizens of that heavenly city. So Jesus, back in our text, is beginning this international, this universal, this cosmic work with these twelve Apostles. He signals that kind of work going on by choosing twelve. Now that was a little bit of theology. Hopefully that wasn't too bad for you. I even had more, but I cut it out. You're welcome. <laughs> Before we move on, I, I just want to point out something. Uh, I want to give something to your soul here for a moment. Um, and then I'll, I'll tackle that last heading, the, the, the traitor. Um, I want you to see, uh, we don't have time to look at this group that Jesus chooses. But we can know, these guys aren't, aren't that great. I mean, you've got 
So you got fishermen, common, broken tax collectors. Uh, you got skeptics. You got political extremists in this group. I want you to know that Jesus has uh, more hope for us, for you, than you even have for yourself or have for one another for that matter. Uh, that Jesus, if I'm looking at this group, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I would not choose this crew. If I was trying to be strategic, pragmatic, symbolic, if I was trying to uh, think about who's going to carry on my legacy, who should I multiply myself and who will I get the most, you know, kickback from? Who should I start the new humanity with? Who should, who should stand at the foundations of the new people, of the, of the redeemed community of God? I'm not thinking these are the guys. I'm not thinking I pick these people out. I mean, these guys are going to make me look bad. These guys are going to make me slow down. These guys aren't going to accomplish all that I'm after in the mission, are they? I want the beautiful, I want the bold, I want the smart, I want the strong, I want the rich. Quite frankly, I don't want guys like me or people like you or people like them. But Jesus, I mean, it's amazing. He's looking at these guys, he has so much hope for what he is about to do. And that's the key, you see. It's not about Hoping for them and what they have. I see your hidden potential. (laughs) You guys have all this potential and I'm just going to bring it out. No way. He says, I see the potential of my grace. My grace can overcome any barrier. What? Weakness? Sin? A bad past with an abusive father? What? You got financial struggles? It's nothing for my grace, you see. He sees not our capabilities, but his own. And therefore, he has incredible hope for you and for me. It is amazing. It's as if he's saying, man, you don't think I can build my church with a group of wishy-washy men like Peter? Watch me. (laughs) I will build the church so strong with men like him that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. Satan himself won't be able to stop what I'm going to do with these 12 men, with this church, with people like you and I, brothers and sisters. And we're a part of this movement. And he's hoping for us. And he's moving for us. And he can do amazing things through us. And here's the awesome thing. Because he chose nobodies, losers and broken, and like Paul would say, the things that are not. Because he chose nobodies, it actually, and, and made from them, I should say, somebodies, if you will. It actually doesn't... Uh, 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 tarnish his name, his legacy at all. In fact, it establishes it, doesn't it? It actually makes him look as amazing as he really is because people looking in go, no way. No way they did that. No way those guys started. That's, that's, one, of the biggest, <laughs> that's one of the biggest apologetics for the validity of the gospel is look at who started this thing. 
These 12 guys came up with this that now is all over the world and, and, and one, of the, you know, one of the greatest religions of all time. You're kidding me. These 12 guys sitting there did that. Do you know who they were? This is a God thing. And that's why when the Jewish leaders see Peter and, and John after the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit, and they have this kind of boldness. This is what they say in Acts 4.13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And here's the key phrase. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Only Jesus could have done that with these kind of men. And he can do it with us, you guys. He's hoping for you. He's hoping for your spouse. He's hoping for your friend that you've lost hope for. Jesus can do amazing things with losers, with nobodies, with broken, sinful people. You feel that way this morning? Well, guess what? You're in good company because Jesus started the new humanity. <laughs> With a group of 12 people like that. Like us. Now. Let me move us into that third point. And here I'll draw things to a close. i got to ask how. How is Jesus going to do it? How is he going to multiply himself in a bunch of losers like these disciples like us? How is he going to do this? The answer is given somewhat subtly in the very last words of our text. Following verse 13, we're given the list of men Jesus chooses and names as his apostles. And concluding this list in verse 16b is who? Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Here is, I think, perhaps the most captivating detail in our text. Because this is what blows my mind, if we put all of this together. Responding to the rising opposition of the religious establishment, what does Jesus do? He organizes a new community, calls these 12, points them apostles. He organizes a new community, a new Israel around himself. But, intriguingly, it's going to be from within this new community that the sharpest opposition of all will arise. Do you see that? responding to the opposition of these days I'm going to form a community but guess what from within this community that's where the sharpest opposition is going to come that's where the dagger that will drive through our Savior's heart is going to come one of the twelve is going to put him in the grave It's no longer out there anymore. It's opposition from within. I mean, I wanted to do so much with this, but I can't. But think about this. It's from within. Jesus says, John 13, 18, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. An apostle is what I bring in as close as I can. He's ate my bread. 
I just washed his feet. And he is going to lift the very foot I just washed against me to take me down. It's from within now that opposition is rising. And it's not just the rejections of enemies anymore. Now it's the betrayal of a friend. You remember what Jesus says to Judas when he comes to him in the garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 50. Friend, do what you came to do. Friend, he's looking at this guy who just betrayed him, who he had walked so intimately with for so many years. And he's calling him even at the end, friend, do what you came to do. I mean, it's overwhelming, the, 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 the love of our Lord, and it's amazing to see it. It's one of the twelve that's going to take him down. And this is how he's going to redeem us. It's in his death that we come alive. Dies for our sin. Dies for the things that, that kept us dead. So that in him, by principle, his resurrection and the outpouring of the spirit, we come alive. The new community here, Judas had no idea. He was just furthering the plan of God along, not hindering it. And that gets to the last thing I want to say. We cannot miss the chain of of events identified in our text. I said it was a stunning chain of events. Here's why. Jesus chooses Judas after spending all night on a mountain in prayer to his father. I mean, first read of this text, we think, whoa, Jesus, you missed it. (laughs) You really missed it. You misheard your father. Wow. Even the son of man can get prayers wrong. Like you went and you chose the traitor. You blew it. You messed up. You must have misheard your father, but the scriptures will not permit such an interpretation here. No, quite the opposite, in fact. I actually think what, what, what Luke, what God wants us to see is the purposefulness, the intentionality of this choice. He wants us to connect the prayers of Jesus on the mountain with his selection of Judas as the apostle who would betray him. And he wants us to to make that connection so we can be sure of one thing in particular. Hear me on this. I know you might be tired. However much the cross can be ascribed to the wicked intentions of sinful men. And it can But it is above all else to be ascribed to the redemptive intentions of a gracious God. So, yes, were men gathered against Christ around Calvary to to put him to death? Absolutely. But, uh, I can't remember who says it there in Acts 4, I think it is. (laughs) But... These men were only gathered around Jesus to do what his father had predestined, had determined they would do. It was a part of his plan to redeem. So we cannot ascribe the cross to just the sinful intentions of man. We must ascribe it to the gracious, redemptive intentions of God. 
And that's what he wants us to see. Grace is not just accidental. I'll make something good from something bad. It is sovereign. It is intentional. And the cross is not just an afterthought. It is the plan from all eternity. So Jesus chose Judas because the Father told him to. And the Father told him to because God so loved the world, he sent his only son. And there on that mountain, if I'm reading it correctly, Jesus is wrestling with his Father, pleading for help and strength to, to carry on that plan. And so he comes down after a night of prayer and chooses Judas, who would become a traitor. And he goes to the cross for you and for me. Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we don't have to doubt the uh, intentionality, the lavishness of your grace. It's not something we twisted your arm into. It's something you planned, you desired, you worked tirelessly to give. And we are the recipients of amazing grace. I don't know how, I don't know how you dwell with your enemies so intimately and love them and care for them and bless them and pray for them and die for them. God, you do. Jesus, you do. And there's nothing in Judas that isn't also in my flesh. Thank you for saving a wretch like me. We rejoice, we celebrate. Because of what our, our Lamb has done. What our God, what our Savior has done. Jesus, we, we thank you so much that on the mountain of your trial and trembling, I imagine you crying out to your Father that we thank you that you came down and you chose Judas on purpose. For us, so that you could be led up another mountain and be crucified for us, so that in that new city where the names of the apostles are on the foundations and the names of the tribes are on the gates, our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Written with the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. That you saved us, that you washed us clean, that you're making something beautiful from nothing, from nobody's like us. To you be all glory, to us be all joy, it's in your name that we pray and that we've gathered here today. Amen.